Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. The Devil's Backbone is the movie we watched this week. Levi, in 30 seconds or less, please give me a review of The Devil's Backbone. What is a Guillermo del Toro movie? (laughs) Creepy kids condemned to creeping time and again? Mm -hmm. An instant pain, perhaps? Something dead, which still seems to be alive? A contrasty shot the whole time? Like a bad marketing poster. Like an insect trapped in amber, but more like running buck wild in a subway. A Guillermo del Toro movie is me. That's what preparation sounds like. We had this discussion last week. Great so job. I took the 30 seconds and tried to write a little poetry. And prepared. Yeah. I. Uh, what was? What's your actual review of the movie? It's fantastic. I think this is just as good as Pan's Labyrinth. This is a great movie. Yeah, so I have I have a confession to make. I actually have never seen Pan's Labyrinth. Oh, you haven't? So yeah, oh, this so I'm going to be going into so that one blind. Good. Oh man, yeah. thank you for prefacing that because oh yeah, it's going to be hard not to forward reference Pan's Labyrinth because of everything that happens in this movie. So I'll try and make mm-hmm. sure that you know I'm sticking to Kronos and Mimic, but really a lot of what comes up in Pan's Labyrinth. This is the test chamber for, I think, for Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, I mean, I know that Pan's Labyrinth takes place during the Spanish Civil War, which is uh, where this movie is set. But I was just blown away with this movie. Like, uh, I I was, you know, on the fence about it a little bit going through. I was like, you know, this is interesting. I'm, you know, I, I know that Guillermo del Toro had said that it was his favorite movie that he made. And... I'm like, yeah, this is good. You know, it's interesting. But the last 30 minutes, man, is just a barn burner. Absolutely. And yeah, the, the roller coaster is so yeah. cool. I mean, you, the, the, the premise of the movie is that this guy who used to be an orphan and works at an orphanage becomes deranged, murders all the adults at the orphanage and some of the children for gold, and then kids rise up and kill him. And he's ultimately destroyed by a ghost of the of a child that he once murdered. It's amazing. Like this movie, um, really raises the stakes, and it follows along. I think with the Quentin Tarantino idea that we had because it becomes a revenge story, and revenge stories I really feel are very visceral, and they're some of the uh, some of the you know most interesting and and heartfelt heartfelt uh but <laughs> they're movies that people hold close <laughs> to them uh people love revenge movies and i i gotta say i agree we've had this conversation before where in these movies is the revenge actually justice and in this movie i feel like the revenge that the kids got against the villain was actually the only justice that he could have experienced because they were in the middle of a war zone so I I just love it, man. And there were elements of this movie that really reminded me a lot of westerns, and uh, and I love you know this the interesting stuff with like the bomb in the middle of the <laughs> courtyard, and we could talk about the symbolism of that. But it was the whole thing was just really really well done, and I take my hat off to Guillermo del Toro 
because after watching the first two movies, uh, I was you know I, I was excited to see him grow, and this was a, this was a really major step forward for him in terms of of realizing his his artistry on screen. I thought it was a I thought it was a pretty good pretty damn good movie. It's the best evidence that that explains so much why he has so many things on his plate, why he's always being dropped from projects and adding projects because he's trying to, this movie justifies that he is trying to find the environment where he can achieve his creative kind of pinnacle. And I think this movie, especially following mimic shows just what a, a roller coaster he is when it comes to dealing with studios and he did, from what I've read, he put off Blade 2 to work on this. Yeah. And the studio kept bugging him, like, we want to make Blade 2 now. And he said, I'm making this, and you can make Blade 2 without me if you want. But, and I think we'll see this with Blade 2. <laughs> he just does so much better on his own, especially with Spanish-speaking movies. Something about being outside of the U.S. production system. He has the best... I, I think, for his own work. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested to watch Blade 2 again, because like I said, I haven't seen that movie since I was in high school. And I'm really interested to see it through this lens, him coming off of The Devil's Backbone and making Blade 2 and see what... I, I don't know. I, I think people are throwing a lot of shade on Blade 2, and I'm going to really go in with fresh eyes and be like... um, And, and try to try to you know, do what we do on this podcast, which is really try to see this sequentially coming out of devil's backbone. How does that influence Guillermo del Toro making blade two? There's just so many interesting things in this movie though. I want to get into devil's backbone because it really is a slow burn, but he does these quick turns where, you know, we're, we're, we're on board with, with little Carlito as he, you know, navigates his way through the orphanage and, you know, establishes himself within the social pecking order. And then the next scene, you have dead babies in vials and people are drinking the the preservation fluid. It This movie turns on its head. And then the next scene, you have an old lady having sex with a former orphan that she knew since he was a child. Like, this movie takes massive turns quickly and I I was just kind of astounded because once it started zigzagging, it started going real zigzaggy. And then this villain was established and the villain was horrible. And then it becomes a revenge story. And then um and then we 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 get to where we, we wanted to go. I really And we, we have our we have our you know resolution, which was great. The opening, we got Guillermo del Toro's favorite move. A little mm-hmm. bit differently, where it's the story opening, but he really does set up Jaime to be just you hate you assume he's the villain, hmm. and it really takes a long time for you to to transition out of that and over to uh, what's his name? The it is previous. Jacinto. Yeah, Jacinto. Um, what did you? I mean, how did you think that Jaime was? The one that killed, did you not see the... I thought at oh, yeah. best he didn't kill him, but he kind of no, finished thought... him off. No, I yeah, I thought that the kid got brain damage when the bomb hit. 
and then he was sitting there and so for some reason he disposed of him in the water <laughs> which where does what is this water source is this like a spring like i have no idea what this water source is my guess would be in a desert you know it's the plains of spain and so maybe there are times of dry spells but mm-hmm. who's drinking this water cuz they keep dumping yeah. bodies in it well, exactly. Like you, you're not going to put a dead body into water. <laughs> it's going to poison the well. It's interesting. It's a callback to mimic because remember there was the bug that got washed up into the water treatment plant. There's something about contaminating water that we might want to keep an eye out for within the Guillermo del Toro canon because dead bodies being disposed of in water is a. Uh, it's an interesting thing. But yeah, I, I had a hard time understanding what this water was. Like, was it... Because it was so brown, too. Like, was it the sewer? Brown enough maybe? that you couldn't see a dead body floating around in the bottom ever. Nobody ever cleaned that body out of there. Right. Yeah, it was just in there. And, you know, we can split hairs here. <laughs> um, you know, for Guillermo del Toro, I really do think that the story is the king. And there might be weird dialogue. There might be odd character motivations and there might be a few plot holes but um i feel like the story itself kind of drives so so eloquently forward that you can dismiss some of that stuff within his you know imagination and but one of the things was that dude if the kid is in there and he's tied up his body's gonna start deteriorating and then like his arm's gonna float up (laughs) to the top (laughs) you know it's not it's not just gonna stay down there um we never but, did get a uh, timeline for how long the body was. I, I think it was. It couldn't have been that long new. because everybody's like, "Oh, Santi's bed." Mm-hmm. So, yeah, his bed was recently vacated. I think. I don't. Yeah, it couldn't have been that long. Plus, you know, Jaime is wasn't that old. Uh, yeah, it was. I don't know. I I, I saw Jaime as kind of being a. Um, kind of being a nuisance but then i started to see how carlos was was uh starting to establish himself within the pecking order and i really like carlos dude like that kid is is a fighter and he comes in and he's a little bit timid and you know he reads comic books and stuff but he knows how to socially navigate like a like a pro you know keeping your mouth shut not writing anybody out uh, standing up to people, being brave, like when they call you names, just being like, I'm not that, and I'll go get water, but you you have to come with me, and if you're scared, then now, you, now you're the wuss, so uh, I really like Carlos as a character, and it was interesting to me, because he kind of, I guess he's the protagonist of this movie, but this movie gets so fleshed out from a character perspective throughout that by the end of the movie... The only one character that is, you know, painted in that and protagonist or antagonist space is Jacinto, just because he's such a giant asshole. The biggest dick. Yeah. By far. On so many that levels guy. too. Yeah. I like there were just there were just a lot of like really cool moments in this movie because I think bravery on screen is something that is really empowering and it makes you interested and it makes you really root for characters um and especially subtle bravery like it's one thing to be the hero to be the rambo and jump into a village in in vietnam and destroy everything like that's a form of bravery but there's like quiet bravery in this movie that i really really liked and my favorite was conchita 
when she stands up to Jacinto. She she's walking out to town and they pull up in the truck and she just goes, I'm not afraid of you. And that's all he wants. He just wants her to be afraid of him. And she's like, I'm not afraid of you. And, she, and he takes out his knife. She's like, I'm not afraid of you. And then he stabs her and kills her. But she gets to die with, you know, there's so much dignity within that death because she never surrendered to him. Like, there's those those quiet acts of bravery make these characters really stand up as, you know, uh, admirable, admirable people. And it makes you really root for them. Well, and it's uh, the choice of the Spanish. How much do you know about the Spanish Civil War? Not much at all. I've only read the homage of Catalonia, so that's really my only reference point. And that's that, more than me. <laughs> it paints the war in a really odd light because it's it's not written from the perspective of a Spaniard. It's written by uh, I can't remember the writer, and that's shameful. Uh, but he fought. He went and fought. If you remember the international unit that gets gunned yeah. down, he was one of those guys, and it's just a. It was a really nasty fight because there was so much grandstanding and national and nationalism that mm-hmm. was sort of struggling back and forth. And we'll see this with the setting of Pan's Labyrinth, just the the brutality that really is most obvious now. But at the time it it's the it's probably the way that you know, people who are going for Trump feel like this is my country. <laughs> you know, everybody feels this nationalism, but what right. everybody expects of their nation is radically different. So th- it yeah. was a war where, you know, when it's civil war in this instance, that that individual bravery really does mean a lot. And the fact that Jacinto is a coward, they, they're they hiding him. He's obviously just yeah. gone out of his way to not take a side and all he's on Jacinto's side and that's it. He's on and, his own. And they don't make a huge deal out of it, but they bring it up enough that while he gets, he, while he's greedy and he attacks the, the, the kids and all the people at the orphanage, his big crime is that he has no stance that he is only for mm-hmm. himself in this moment of national yeah. crisis. Yeah, it's one hundred percent selfish, and that's. I mean, yeah, that selfishism. I mean, that that paints like. We'll, I'll go back to Tarantino. When we think about the great Tarantino villains, I think of uh, of oh god, what's the guy from Jackie Brown? What's his name? Odell. Yeah, uh, like Odell is probably the scariest to me of the of the um, Tarantino villains, and the second scariest to me, other than, I mean. Christoph Waltz's character in, in *Inglorious Bastards* is a huge asshole, um, and, but he also exhibits this as well. And the same thing with uh, Candy in *Django Unchained*. All three of those people are they all they all they do is is look out for themselves. I think his name is Ordell. Ordell, yeah, Ordell. But um, but yeah, they're they're just incredibly selfish people, and maybe there's something in this where selfish people make the best villains because they don't have any dogma except for their own egos and anybody who gets in their way, you know, has to be put down. And it was just so interesting. Like I'll go back to when uh, Conchita got killed by, uh, by Jacinto. 
it was really a pride thing. He's like, you're making me look stupid, and now I have to kill you. Like, he's so, you're right, he's such a coward that he can't, he can't exhibit any insecurity or else it, it just becomes some kind of giant weakness for him. And in the end, it becomes his downfall because he gets killed by a bunch of children. Well, in the best, we should say oh, just that, talking about that scene for last, yeah. but it was so good. It was a very, that's the thing, man. Like, we have, we've had this conversation, and I think this separates this story from the Tarantino revenge stories, is that the Tarantino revenge stories are very much, you know, um, I guess it's selfishness versus idealism. In a lot of ways, and in this story, it's selfishness versus virtue, <laughs> and so there's something about it where, uh, where this guy is so bad, and there's no way that he's ever going to meet justice. So we might as well just, um, you know, we we might as well just kill him, and that's that's the best justice that he can have. And he gets killed by the most meek people. Like it's so wonderful. Like there's there's something about this where. I think it's in the Sermon on the Mount. It says the meek shall inherit the earth. And when um, when uh, little Carlos gets to the orphanage, they say he's meek. You know, keep an eye on him. And he's the one who leads the charge and defeats the big bad in this movie. There's just so much really cool. And we haven't even talked about the ghost stuff. <laughs> like, the ghost stuff is really interesting to me as well. Uh, because the ghosts live out of time. And Guillermo del Toro gives us spoilers through the movie. The first ghost, uh, he's you know he says a lot of you are going to die because he lives out of time and space. He can understand, he can see what's going to happen in the future. And then the second ghost, the doctor says you guys are going to be fine. So I knew that the kids were going to be fine, but it still adds you know some kind of. I mean, maybe that's in there. Maybe th- maybe they had to have the doctor say it's fine because it was becoming so dreary and dreadful <laughs> after all of the adults had been murdered along with half the kids. Um, but it, w- it was just really interesting how those ghosts lived out of time. I, th- I thought that was cool. The ghost mechanic to me was fascinating. And I enjoy the the preface of the poem about what is a ghost. Is it an insect trapped in amber, which... Guillermo del Toro loves his insects. Is it an instant of pain? Is it because there are those questions and, and it's the doctor trying to find the root cause and the scene where they're in the, in the doctor's office and the kids and Carlos is explaining how he saw a ghost and Casares is saying that he's a man of science and he, he, there's an explanation for these things. And then he baits the kid with the fetal baby rum. And I think that moment, and then, you know, the kid takes off and then he drinks it. That is one of the, the best show. Don't tell moments Uh I've ever seen because it tells you one. Casares doesn't necessarily buy his own words. Yeah. He, or he's a, he's a superstitious man. Um, yeah. It tells you about his impotence, which really primes us yep. for Jacinto as we start to see Jacinto's darker side and yep. and the inner workings of the orphanage. Um, and it's to me, it's a little bit of Guillermo del Toro himself. He loves fantasy, but mm-hmm. he always has an expl- 
for Mimic, for the the bug in Kronos, and a lot of the things that. And if you read the strain, like he tries to explain vampires through the notion of uh, a virus and uh, a parasite, he's always trying to give rules and background to his devices because he he's a man of science but he's still mm-hmm. superstitious he can't get over that yeah. kind of classic mexican background that he has where well in the catholic background yeah too. i mean that's i feel like his movies are really like there's a saying that i really like that i've kind of come to uh come to understand in my own life which is idealism is the enemy of reason and I think it's really important to question the things that you're really idealistic about and let them be challenged because if they can't be challenged, then they probably aren't worth believing in because <laughs> I don't know the, if if you if you're not open to challenge on the things you believe in then they're then they then they're straw man arguments right um, there, so there's something within here that. Uh, you know Guillermo del Toro. He, he he calls himself a lapsed Catholic, which is not necessarily an atheist. So there's something, and I've and I've understood this from some other people that I've you know listened to and read who are who you you would call lapsed Catholics, who don't necessarily adhere to the church in many ways, but they still adhere to those uh, those practices and the rituals. And there's something very comforting within that, but, and then they're able to understand, or for these people, the ritual is more important and the symbolism is more important than the actual, you know, uh, dogma of the church. And I feel like there's something with, with that in this movie, like this movie is about that tussle between, um, mysticism and reason, and there's something like I love how he talks about the, uh, you know the, uh, the the how people in Spain are very superstitious, and and even he himself is superstitious. There's yeah, there's just a lot like that one scene. It it's it's a turning point in the movie because the movie kind of turns from like Stand by Me into <laughs> like what the fuck? <laughs> there's babies in jars. Like what is happening here? And what's wild uh, is. At the only moment in the movie that I think cannot be explained is the unlocking of the door after the kids get locked away. Yeah. Santi never, re- I mean, he knocks over some water jars, which is not really a great ghost power. But and he knocks over some scissors. He knocks over. He knocks things over, which uh-huh. that weird stuff happens from time to time. But and he has that uh, omnipotence where he gives the warning, but he never even when Jacinto is drowning at the end and you see uh, Santi come out of the murk to kind of take him down. It's the gold that's really honestly the gold and the fact that the yeah. kids stabbed him <laughs> in yeah. an artery clearly under his arm and threw yep. him into a pool. Yep, that is easily exp- that that's he died of his own greed. The yeah. door is the only thing in the movie that I could note in hindsight that was, well, how did the door get unlocked? <laughs> well, I mean, ghosts are definitely a part of this. Like, ghosts exist in this story. Um, but, but yeah, there's... One of the things that I really like, too, like a saying that I have for myself, is that you should be wary of anybody who's 100% sure about anything. And that statement is 
is you know a fallacy in itself because it's a very declarative statement and in itself it discredits itself uh because if you believe in that 100 percent, then you're also uh going against your own dogma anyway it's been eric's eric's deep thoughts yeah exactly but that's the thing that's the thing about this movie i feel like is that uh if you have that kind of scientific curious mind this is something i really like about this if you have that scientific curious mind then you have to be open to the possibility of supernatural things because you know there's an idea of maybe we are just a brain cell in a higher organism who's having a dream and we're all just part of that you know whatever you you can get really weird with it right um but we i think people really like to ingrain themselves in science because science is based on a you know a method and it's based on reason and it's based on evidence and all of those things but i feel like there's a point to which science becomes a idealism or it becomes a dogma and even you know bill nye who's like our guy he's like the science well he is the science guy um <laughs> But even he, you know, will admit that this is the best, like, when he talks about evolution, he says, you know, this is, or any any scientific thing, this is the best guess of the greatest minds who are thinking about this stuff. Now, that's a pretty good, uh, that's a pretty good argument that, you know, the people who are researching this the strongest and the hardest would have put years of their life into trying to understand these scientific concepts, and then together, collectively, the best ideas that come out of that group, those are probably some really good ideas. But at the same time, who knows, dude? Like, we could be a marble being flicked around by a few aliens. <laughs> well, that's why, you know, Guillermo del Toro loves H.P. Lovecraft, and that's because H.P. Yeah. Lovecraft combines the the notion of horror, like cosmic horror, yeah. with the fact that our science could totally be just, you know, one-tenth of one percent of what's going on in the universe. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't try and say it's magic to explain the fact that Cthulhu's sleeping under the ocean. It's just the simple notion that we're so cosmically stupid (laughs) that we just would never understand how these things work. So it, it's able to, to coexist with reason and science, but it kind of carves off this huge portion for itself to say, well, you just don't understand. And it's, uh, I don't know if it's Philip K. Dick or Arthur C. Clarke, but any, He's got a quote that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic because you can't <laughs> understand the notions that that operate with those sorts of things. And that's why uh, Guillermo del Toro, I think, is drawn to notion things like clockwork versus outright magic because it's, yeah. it's fantastic, yeah. but it's there's an inner, you know, it's gears. They're just really yeah, cool, super it. small gears. And steam, yeah, a lot of steam. There's a, you, there's a really good, um, you know, there's a really good quote from the Bible that's, uh, you know, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, which is, you know, a really interesting concept. <laughs> it's like, you know, it doesn't matter how smart we get, and it, and this follows like science. Like, if you want to see where we're at from a scientific perspective, it's like, you know, we all watch Star Trek and we're like, ah, oh, why can't we just have transporters? Why do we have laser guns? And why don't we have this or that? 
It's like there's this idea that all of that is possible if only we could think about it hard enough as a as a unit, you know? Um, like we could achieve it as a species if we just think hard enough. And there, the, so inherent in that idea is that there's so much knowledge out there that we cannot even begin to grasp. And, and that's what I really like about Guillermo del Toro. It's like, he, you know, he ties it to that, that yes, science is probably the best we can do right now, but understanding the weaknesses within the scientific method and scientific theory allows you to open yourself up to the possibilities of the infinite. Um, so, and I you, think this is this is a viewpoint that I think we should look at in his movies. Yeah, and above all, if you listen to him talk in any interview, he likes having fun. So he yeah. un- he has these underlying <laughs> themes, but at the end of the day, the dude just wants to make robots punch other larger monsters. <laughs> so. <laughs> He's, yeah, I think he, he and he lands the balance really well, better yeah. than I was the the final death of Jacinto. I cheered harder than any moment in Batman versus Superman. <laughs> I didn't. I haven't seen that yet. Don't don't bother. Rent it if at all. No, I'm gonna go see it, dude. I love Batman. I'm gonna watch every Batman movie in the theater. Well, if I wouldn't saw Batman and Robin in the theater, <laughs> two hours. I don't know. I tend to, uh, I'm not, I'm not, if it's, you know, whatever, if it doesn't thrill me, then I, at least I got to see Batman. I love Batman. Batman's like my favorite. So <laughs> a man um, of science. Yeah, exactly. But th- that's the great thing, right? It's it. That's one, that's one thing why we love Batman because he's the man of science and reason and strategy and intelligence and genius. But he's trying to deal with, like, in the in the DC Universe context, he's trying to deal with a bunch of supernatural aliens and gods and all this shit. And he's just like, what the fuck? And like you said, with it, with the how, with how we deal with Star Trek, if only we put our minds to it. Batman yeah. has basically infinite resources, so we're totally cool with every gadget he pulls out of his pocket. Never a question of right. the science behind its inner workings. Well, they also generally remain mechanical or within the realm of something that we understand. Like, there's other tech-based superheroes in the DC universe, like Booster Gold, who's from, like, you know, centuries in the future, who steals uh, technology and then and then becomes a time traveler. Like, Batman's not doing any time travel, like, utility belt things. You just put your toe over that comic book line where I totally have no idea. <laughs> but you predicted... Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy was going to be good, and you were one hundred and ten percent right. So I'll I'll go with it. Yeah, Booster Gold, man, he's my dog. Booster Gold is legit. I love Booster Gold. Anyway, okay, so we're we're diverting, yeah. <laughs> and I and I appreciate both you and the listener going going with me on this a little bit of a rabbit trail. But it's like this is I think Guillermo del Toro's ideas that there's this idea of the fantastic. There's something really interesting and unknown about it. Um, you know, we talked about last week about the composition of stories and how most stories can fall into the idea of going into the forest to find a dark but life-giving secret. And that forest for Guillermo del Toro gets populated with monsters and the supernatural and the fantastic. And I feel like he p- puts that in the context of two things, of science and of religion. And... And then by establishing those two things within his movies, he allows that fantastic stuff to 
um, to exist, and he allows his characters to interact with it in a believable way because they are so rooted in their idealism. And really, this movie's about like fascism, which is kind of idealism to the extreme becomes fascism, and how to overcome that through basically innocence, which is just it, it makes the movie so freaking good. <laughs> I, was, I was really blown away by this movie, honestly. Like the last thirty minutes, just kind of, uh, kind of just put me back in my seat, and I was, I was, I was hooked. It really does take a turn when Jacinto decides to start burning everything down because that's when the the escape option is taken off the table yeah and then Guillermo del Toro kills some more kids that's a del Toroism mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned for the rest of the yeah. the rest Child of the murder he loves killing it. kids and it's <laughs> it's an effective mechanism and in this one yeah. it wasn't nearly as brutal as the kids in Mimic because Mimic was full on slasher yeah. with the kids this you just really see the bodies and the explosion uh but I'm the that turn. It was the movie compartmentalizes so well into those the start where Jaime is really the villain and Carlos is trying to fit in and the discovery of the ghost, which the ghost really kicks in early, which caught yeah. me off guard because I expected more genre horror genre tropes where you mm-hmm. really only get shadows until halfway through and yeah. then you get you know I was the the ghost is so tame by comparison to other genre horror I tried to combine horror and genre into genre horror <laughs> tropes the ghost would have dropped those knives onto a kid's foot and pushed the water over and yeah. broken a, the jar over somebody's head. And I just liked the the pullback that this really let uh, the... I don't know. It, the unfolding of the ghost was so well done and not rushed. Well, it's better when you think about it in hindsight because the ghost knocked over the water so that the kids would have to like that's what i love about the ghost he lives out of time so he understood that if he knocks over the water then he's going to be able to introduce himself to carlos based on the turn of events that is going to occur as they try to go get water from the kitchen so he he set that up for himself as the ghost he set up meeting carlos which eventually led to him um which eventually led to him getting his vengeance against uh events against Jacinto. So he set the whole thing up himself. He set up the machinations just like a clock. <laughs> you know, it's it was really interesting. What do you think about the bomb? Because there's symbolism there, right? That this movie is the bomb? <laughs> I The bomb was interesting and almost felt misleading. The, uh-huh. the idea of it is the heart of, you know, that it has a heart, that it's still alive. I was surprised that the bomb didn't come into the movie more, but mm-hmm. it does act as a constant reminder that there's a world outside of the orphanage and it is twice as brutal as inside. I don't know if it feels it. That was to me, the bomb's largest threat 
is just that the war can come to this place at any time. And yeah. I was surprised that it did not in some way relate to more to the ghost. Um, and it was, I think that's fine. I, I don't know. What do you, was there something specific that you took away from the bomb? Well, I think that Bomba. this also, there's an uh, there's a semi-unexplicable supernatural element to the bomb in that Carlos goes out to the bomb and he asks the bomb to point him to, what is it, Santo? What is this kid's name? Uh, Santi. Santi. Um, so he goes to the bomb and he says, point me to Santi, and then the wind blows on the ribbons on the back of the bomb to into the room where Santi is. And that's when Carlos and Santi have their little chase scene, and <laughs> Santi chases him into the closet. But that's also another supernatural thing, because you could hear Santi banging on the door, you can see him turning the doorknob. Um, and, uh, like, what comes to mind is the ghost in the machine, because it's a ghost, and there's, like, a ticking clock within the machine that if you click on it, you can, <laughs> or if you knock on it, you can hear the the ticking within it. Um so there's something along kind of those lines for me. Uh, but the bomb, you know, it's just kind of great imagery. I, li- I really like your take on it, that the war can come to them at any moment. That it just adds a sense of urgency to the plot, which I really like. Um, but let's talk about the... I want to talk about the, the adults in this movie, too. The worst adults in the world? I don't know, man. Generally, I feel like they're doing the best they Alma, can. Alma, though. Alma was a baller. She went down... Dude, trying Alma to was put an idiot. out the fire. She was a dumb dumb. Come she was on, trying to save the kids. If she, had dude, succeeded- there's a bunch of gasoline, and she is fanning it with a blanket. There's, you're not gonna put out a She's gasoline. To stomp fire. it out with the blanket. No, she wasn't. She was sw- swatting at it. <laughs> like if she really wanted to help the kids, she should have gotten them all out of the building and ushered them out of the building. Not stand there with a blanket and fan the flames. Well, we could talk about Dr. Casares ignoring every bleeding child to hold his not-girlfriend as she dies. Yeah. The I, worst there was triage a, I've ever seen. There was definitely an obsession there for him. But he was also on his last legs. Um <laughs> <laughs> no, no pun intended for Carmen. Uh, anyway, yeah, there, but Carmen was a really interesting character to me because she was, you know, part of the resistance. Basically, she had the idealism with her, um, the leftist idealism fighting the nationalists. Um, but at the same time, she, that idealism is essentially what blinded her. And what caused her to, you know, caused her to, caused her end, basically. I was just really surprised because it seemed like she didn't want to have the kids there. <laughs> like, from the beginning, she wasn't very interested in having the kids there. Um, but also this relationship that she had with uh, Jacinto was so odd and interesting. And she, like, kept pictures of him and she wrote on the back of them and all of this. Um I thought that that relationship between her and Jacinto was was strange. And I guess we'd have to explore kind of the impotent idea here because that that was really strong. You're right. Like he he wanted like the old man wanted to drink that because he knew that he couldn't satisfy her. Uh but at the same time I don't think she ever really wanted the old man. Yeah, I I got the same sense that she enjoyed his presence, you know, the mm-hmm. poetry, but yep. that it was really not 
And maybe that you talk about her coming across as not wanting to have the children there. That in some ways is the way that she feels about the doctor. She has these split needs. She's Mm -hmm. fighting the resistance, but she's got all these kids around her. Uh, She's fucking Jacinto, but she kind of likes the doctor on an intellectual level. Yeah. She's, she is that those kind of those conflicts and they don't, they don't explore too much why and how she came to be the principal. Yep. And you know, ultimately when she, when she died, I think it was, uh, I don't know that they needed to explore further. I think it worked, but I agree that it leaves, it leaves some questions as to, you know, her, her motivations. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's the thing about this movie that really got to me in the last 30 minutes is that each character became so fleshed out and interesting that you just want to learn more about them. Um, I mean, I wanted to learn more about Jacinto, like what drove him to be this maniacal? Uh, I mean, we get some insight into his childhood because, uh, Carmen says that he was always the saddest child. Um, but there's, yeah, there's just a lot of really interesting character development that occurs. You know, Guillermo del Toro also does some really incredible foreshadowing in this movie that you don't get necessarily on your first pass, but is explained. Like, all the dialogue's just so good in this movie. There is the scene where Carmen, you know, is complaining to Alma, and she says, my leg is, it's my leg, it feels heavier than it ever has been. <laughs> and then we realize that it's because it has the gold in it. Yeah, I uh, I did not pick that up until the very end. Yeah. And I don't know what it was that made me go, oh, stars yeah. above. As soon as I saw the gold, I was like, oh, that's why it was so heavy. Um, and then the really interesting foreshadowing when they're in the classroom and they're talking about killing the mammoth. And there's a you know, drawing of a bunch of cavemen with spears killing a mammoth. And then at the end, they kill Jacinto with a bunch of spears. This is really interesting, intricate foreshadowing that occurs throughout the movie that you're not going to pick up on, but it makes thinking about the movie even more interesting because you start pacing yourself through every scene and being like, how, how does this tie to what actually occurred throughout the movie? The mammoth, my, my Edgar Wright sense was tingling when we got that uh-huh. particular line. And I, I didn't realize it would be so literal, but she talks about how, you know, men had to come together to bring down this larger threat. Yeah. And that I picked up on just the way, something about the way that scene was prefaced that really got me like, ah, one thing that was <laughs> a really nice subtle touch. And I'm curious if you caught this was when Dr. Casares dies sitting in his chair and you see all the flies around. And then when uh, the kid hurts his ankle falling out the window yeah. And you see flies, just a few in the shot. Yep. As the kid looks up, they don't have to show Dr. Casares anything. You know from the flies that it's Dr. Casares' ghost because he said, I'm not leaving this place. Yeah. He had unfinished business. Yeah, it was uh, so good. And let's talk about that final scene where they killed this into because I have it underlined in my notes here. Armpit stab. 
This should be oh, more common. The perfect in stats. Movies. Yes. <laughs> your armpit is like the most vulnerable part on your body. Like I would love to see it in like Gladiator or something where the they're in the ring and the guy just grabs a guy's arm, lifts it above his head and then stabs him through the armpit. Because if you did that, <laughs> I mean this time he just kind of hits an artery, but if you had a sword and you stab somebody through the armpit, you're going through heart, you're going through lungs, no problem. That's like easy <laughs> access to the rib cage. So I was I was excited about the armpit. I, I was probably a little overexcited about the. I know. I what's <laughs> funny is stab. my notes what was my line exactly. I'm now super invested for them to go Hunger Games on these fools. I think that was about <laughs> the time they were locked up. Yeah, <laughs> and they started fashioning spears, but and they went full on like Velociraptor by faking uh-huh. him out. I was totally blown away and caught off guard when the kid came from the side because. Yeah, I one I kept waiting for the ghost to do something because uh, Santi says bring him to me in this way that denotes he's gonna do something about it, mm-hmm. but he really does. It's really on the kids to to finish right. him off. They do all the work. Yeah, but there's a really interesting part to that because you know Santi told Carlos bring him to me and. We have to think, once again, Santi lives out of space and time, so he can influence time and space based on uh, his his understanding of being out of time, right? So what all that he needed him to do was push him into the pool. He knew that that would kill him because he knew that his pockets were full of gold and he wouldn't be able to get out, right? So that allows the kids to, instead of you know, kind of brutally shooting him in the head and becoming murderers themselves. I mean, they still murdered the guy. Let's uh, let's let's not split hairs. You know, here. it's really on Jaime, and he had already yeah. prefaced that he he could kill a man. He was ready. He yeah. was avenging his lost love, uh, Cosinta. Yep. It was really it was beautiful. But instead of but instead of blowing his head off or keeping on or you know bleeding him out, they push him into the pool because Carlos tells him to do that because that's where Santi you know, resides. Um, so Santi having that influence allows nobody to actually deal the final killing blow um, and allows uh, Jacinto's own greed to be his downfall and, and ultimately his end. So there's something really interesting about that. Like, that's what I love about this movie. The more I think about it and the more I think about how the ghost influences the plot throughout the film, that makes me, it, it makes me like the movie even more. It's a really powerful notion that, by being in outside of time and space, you can mm-hmm. any action you take can you can influence. So even the idea that uh, if you were to tell somebody a line doesn't matter what the line is, but they were to yeah. not believe you, and the actions they take because they actively don't believe you lead <laughs> to the thing that you predicted and saw. It's uh, Patrick Rothfuss has a has a fan a fantasy creature in the second book in the Kingkiller Chronicles. That is that creature. It sees the future, and no matter what you do, because of how it interacted with you, how it responded, you are in some ways outside of your own choice. Right. Because it has influenced you in a way that it knows your actions and they lead to its desired <laughs> outcome, regardless of how you yeah. felt about the interaction and you, whether or not you actively try and that. And it's, 
It's Guillermo del Toro. His biggest thing ever in all of the interviews that I was reading for this week, it's he's always about choice. It's a parable, yep. and it's yeah. about what choices people make to to uh, in the end. And Jacinto is very much he accuses um, uh, the, some of his actions on having been raised an orphan. And it's really, there's something I read where that was where Del Toro was explaining how that's kind of the pinnacle of cowardice to blame Mm. your actions on an institution instead of how you acted. Because he's very big into disobedience and it's in you. When you disobey, that is when you begin to take on responsibility. And Jacinto yeah. never did that. He is just smitten with how he w- with what he's been subjected to, and so he even blames, I think, his own self interest on the what he has been. Uh, yeah, the environment that he's been raised in. Yeah, and he and he had love. I mean, he had love from Carmen. I feel. I mean, it was probably misplaced love and a little weird love, but like she had written, you know, she she took some kind of uh, of she took him under his under her wing in some ways, and it obviously got really twisted when they started sleeping together. But you know, she's she when he found that old picture of himself and what she had written on the back of it in the safe and that was something that she kept like he he was receiving actual love and he didn't know what to do with it <laughs> you know he just has he has no idea because he uh i feel like he doesn't have any self-worth and through that he only displays selfish selfish actions because he's constantly hungering for some kind of fulfillment that he'll never actually achieve it's it's really interesting on his part. Yeah, man, the character studies on this on this movie are just so deep and interesting. Um, yeah, this is a good movie. <laughs> it's a good movie. The more I think about it, the more I like it. Well, it, I, you know, I was listening to uh, some interview with the L.A. Times, and Guillermo del Toro was saying, you know, "Chronos felt like it was sixty or fifty percent of what he wanted it to be." And then these are his words exactly. And then mimic was like being in prison and picking the soap up in the shower, a pretty harrowing experience. Yikes. And then when I did devil's backbone, all that joy came back. I think he really, Mm -hmm. and I think it shows in how well this movie was, was done. Some of the shots in here, he's really getting his lighting game on point because this, this orphanage has so many spots of shadow and light. And yeah, I, I think mean, there's he, a he's worked a lot with Shadow in these in his other movies so as well. He does his thing and I noticed it really prominently in Kronos and it carried through to this film, so I'm gonna keep an eye on it, is the use of blue and orange light. Um it's an interesting thing because usually so natural light is blue and most artificial light is orange. So that's why if you're taking like a video on your cell phone and it's not white balanced, everything looks orange. Um, <laughs> but if you put the blue and the orange in the same scene and you don't do any white balancing at all, it gives it this really interesting look. And that happens so much in this movie, specifically, it, it called out when Jacinto was in the kitchen 
and he lights the lantern to try his new key on the safe. Uh, he he lights the lantern, and it's this bright orange light, and everything else is dark and blue. And it's this interesting, you know, orange and blue are across from each other on the color wheel, so they're complementary colors. But it's interesting that everything that's in the dark is actually blue. It's not like black and white. Um, so really stylized in that way. And I think that carries through from just my recollection of things like Pacific Rim. I think of like those bright blue and orange colors. So I think it's something to keep an eye on in terms of that cinematography. Yeah, and that's that kind of color balance is such a cool... Can be used to such great effect. Uh, yeah. And, and I think... In a lot of ways, that is where Del Toro begins to sort of really split off from Tarantino and Edgar Wright. I think that they both have stylized methods, but Guillermo del Toro really verges on a comic book and, mm-hmm. you know, almost to the, to a, a form of painting and less a, a shot. And it's yeah. one. It's one of the things I appreciate, and I think it's why his comic book, why a, a lot of his work is either sourced from comics or f- begins. I think Pacific Rim lends itself to the notion of a comic book really well. Oh yeah, and his horror totally. stuff is. You know, these first movies are not so much the case, and some of that's probably just budgetary. You know, and it's yeah. a different. I think we're about to transition to a. a this is a. I would say a a more serious Guillermo del Toro. And I think mm-hmm. with blade and we'll get more of the fun del Toro. And then we go back to serious with Pan's labyrinth. And then we go back to fun with uh Hellboy. So I yeah. think we get to watch him. It'll be fun to go back and forth now as we get it, as we move ahead. I'm interested about it. You know, we kind of broke down Tarantino's filmography into three eras, the L.A. crime story era, the grindhouse era, and the historical fiction era. And I do feel like this film, The Devil's Backbone, creates a – or is is a turning point within Guillermo del Toro's career because you can really see him try to get his footing in Kronos and in Mimic – and he really does, and I think he would admit this, achieve that footing that he was striving for in The Devil's Backbone. And then he pushes forward, and he does a lot more you know, commercial projects after this movie, um, but he has established his voice in a way that allows him some freedom. And it's just it's really interesting to me. I do feel like we're, we're ending kind of the first epic or epoch of uh, Guillermo del Toro's career and entering the second. Um, but I do want to hit on some Del Toroisms because I feel like now that we've seen three films, there's a lot that are calling out to me. Uh, the first one is Bug Collectors. <laughs> Children is Bug Collectors. Uh, what What is the deal with slug collecting? That seems like the worst bug to collect is slug. Is a slug technically a bug? Well, I'm putting it in the bug category. The the crawly, the creepy crawlers. Yeah, the creepy is. crawlers. Yeah, <laughs> it's. It's weird. It is a poor choice of collection because I, that I, I'm trying to remember how. I don't think I played with slugs that much. I think I probably no. did like the salt move on one of them just to see what would happen. Oh, I did that too. I did it once and I felt so bad. It's kind of horrifying. To watch. Oh, it is. It's horrifying. <laughs> and then the fucking little dried up slug cor- corpse was just on like my sidewalk by my house forever, and I felt so horrible. <laughs> They're haunting it. you. It's a ghost. Ghost slug. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, like I, the the thing that was weird to me is like, was this a thing? Because Carlos is collecting a slug at the beginning, and I'm like, okay, so that's Carlos's thing. But then, completely independent of that, Hamy and Santi were also collecting slugs. <laughs> so is I guess slug collecting is just kind of. I mean, maybe it's like the only animal that lives out there so they were fascinated by maybe it maybe it's but... the only non-poisonous maybe ever because i imagine they gotta have some big spiders in that place and i imagine <laughs> those if they bit you were probably pretty mean yeah um, it, you know it's a it's a child fascination with mm-hmm. things that as an adult you probably find more disgusting yeah and that's in a lot of ways just how Guillermo del Toro operates. The, he loves <laughs> bugs. You know, the Kronos device, the secret to immortality to him is contained in a bug. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a fascination with the insect world. But but collecting bugs per, spe- specifically, I want to keep an eye out for that. Another thing is getting hit in the face with a cane <laughs> and breaking your nose. That's right. That's a, that's a callback I for sure. I definitely missed that. Yeah. Jacinto gets smacked in the face with a cane and breaks his nose. So I want to keep that, an eye out for that um, because it was such a big part of of Kronos. Uh, things in jars, of course. Um, really loves those jars. The creepy, loves the, glowing yeah, jars. I think that, and I think those two things, you know, kind of go together: the bug collecting and the things in jars. There's something about archiving specimens that you know really makes him excited. So, and I know that that pops up. I mean, I think about Pacific Rim. That's like a big part of Pacific Rim. They're big jars, but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. But getting smacked in the nose is one of the blue and orange is another one. Water is absolutely. Water. I mean, yep. A, and it's not even necessarily subtle. It is very. All of these movies, I think, will show strong signs of just water as a presence and and a different presence in a lot of ways i'm trying to think of how you would compare the sewer of mimic Mm -hmm. and the the pit with with santi yeah Uh, you know as these i mean the water is the dark woods that contains a a, a scary but life-giving secret in both instances Yeah. yeah absolutely um, I do love the aesthetic of this movie too. I want to see Guillermo del Toro do more period pieces because he's so good at world building that I really liked going back in time with him to a different era. It would I be, feel like that was really good. It would be great to see one in a Mexican revolution because I think mm. that would strike even closer to home for him. Yeah. Which I think moves him in a lot of ways. Yeah, there's just so much. Like the more I think about this movie, the more I like it. I do want to touch on a couple things in the forums. So Zachary on the forums uh, had a really interesting thing. Um, he said, "I really like the theme of children losing their innocence during wartime, and I liked it was summed up by drinking the rum from the preservation, literally removing that which preserves the fetus for profit." There is something about that about the that limbo juice or whatever he called it. Yeah, he called it limbo juice. Uh, how it how it is about eking innocence and praying or preying on innocence, uh, and you know we didn't talk about the war themes that go throughout this movie, but there are the horrors of war are 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 the are the backdrop of the film. Yeah, I think we'll easily have the time to revisit that with with Pan's Labyrinth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Davy Mack said. Uh, 
just caught just caught up with the film today and I thought it was great. It definitely it's definitely one of those horror films that's not very scary, but I'm fine with that. I wouldn't I don't know if I would categorize this as a horror film, even though it is about ghosts. Um it is I, It depends yeah. on how you identify horror films because what is happening to these kids is truly horrifying. Oh, it's ultimately horrific. up to the end where Yeah. it is and it's a little bit Lord of the Flies if you consider Jacinto as one of the children. Where oh, it, it is was one totally worth Dude, yeah, Lord of the Flies, when they go out there with the spears, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> but just him uh, lording simply based on his size over these yeah. children. And it doesn't work out in his favor, but. No, I like. But it's. I think it's really interesting because Guillermo del Toro has talked about in his movies, the monsters aren't what's scary, it's the people that are scary. And that's something that kind of carries... I mean, Mimic, the monsters are supposed to be scary. But in Kronos and here in Devil's Backbone, it's not about the monsters that are scary. It's how people react to the monsters. Or, you know... So so that I really like that because I guess what they are experiencing is horrific. But since that horror isn't... Uh, you know, ga- that horror doesn't go through the device of the monster. That's why it kind of gets separated from a horror film in my mind. But you know, I also don't. I don't have a great horror rep- repertoire. It's not a genre that I'm really familiar with. So, um, but I like that. You know, it, it's it's about the horrors of the humans. It's not about the horrors and the scariness of the monsters. Another thing, Davey said. Um, you know, he said I, I really like the recontextualization of what happened to Santi. At the beginning, I thought the injury was bomb related, as opposed to being brutally thrown up against the wall. Uh, and then he makes some comparisons to Pan's Labyrinth, which I'm very excited to see this as a companion piece. Oh, it's going to be so, I'm so, that's so cool that you haven't seen it. That's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, and Davey Mack also, if you just go to the forum on this, on the Devil's Backbone forum, he posted a essay that's part of the Criterion Collection for this film. I really recommend you read that essay if you liked this movie. It's very good reading. Um, and then, yeah, Dances with Wookiees uh, says, wow, does Del Toro like his child murder, LOL. He does, man. The kids are going to die. The kids will die in his movies. Um, well, I think that's all the time we have. Please uh, post on the forum. We are going to have a forum up for Blade 2. Um, so, listener, become part of the conversation. Go to forums.baldmove.com and post there. Love to read your comments on the show. Also, you can email us directpodcast at gmail.com. And until Blade next week, I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Cut.